following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Have you been watching these political debates? There's one thing that, well, not one, but there's a lot of things, but one today that I want to talk about that really bugs me about these debates. Have you noticed this? Um, that the candidates never actually answer the question that they have been asked. Have you noticed that? Instead, they answer a different question that only exists in their head. Maybe it has one word that's the same as the question that was asked, but they see it as a, as a springboard to jump into one of their prepared talking points. So frustrating to watch these debates. And of course, that doesn't just happen in political debates. Sometimes you talk to people and you wonder, are they listening to the words that I just said? Because what they've just responded with sounds like something that they were already interested in talking about. But one thing I've realized is that that same kind of conversational tick can happen in a way that's actually not frustrating. In, in, in fact, it's quite the opposite. Have you ever talked to a person, maybe an expert in a field that you're interested in, and you're asking them questions, and you don't know it, but your questions are not good enough? Like, the person knows what you mean, though, and he or she will, will kind of answer the question that you meant to ask, that you probably should have asked in the first place, but you're sort of ignorant. You ever had that experience? It's the same kind of thing as in the debates, but in a positive way. Or even better, have you ever had a conversation with someone who knows you so well, maybe a person who loves you so deeply that it almost doesn't matter what words you use because you are going to be understood? What a blessing that is. And in today's story from the Gospel of John, Jesus responds to some questions in the same way. Actually hitting both sides of this coin, <laughs> uh, both intellectually frustrating, I'm sure, to the woman, but also intimately knowledgeable of her and ultimately very loving. All of those things at once. And so it occurs to me, this is a little pre-sermon sermon, that those of us who talk to Jesus and sometimes feel like we're not getting the answers to the questions we're asking, that maybe it might just be, not, it's not always this. Don't hear me saying that. That wouldn't be fair. I don't know everything that's going on in your life. I certainly don't have divine knowledge that God has. But it might just be that you are asking Jesus one question and he's answering a different one and you can't quite hear it because you're so concerned with the little thing that you want to talk about. <laughs> Might be. Okay, so that's a, that's a pre-sermon sermon. Amen. <laughs> but today we're jumping back into the Gospel of John. Um, you may remember if you were here in the spring and summer that we started a series in the book of John that is going to go, I don't know how long, as long as it takes to get through the whole thing. Um, but mercifully, we've decided not to do all of it at once. Um, uh, I am far too uh, ADD to do that. Uh, but we will jump around, and we've done some other series and talked about some topical things. And, and I was really, really just 
aching to get back into just looking at a text together. And so we're, we're jumping back into the book of John for a few weeks here. We're going to do the entire chapter four, and then we'll be on to some other things after that. But today's story uh, contains a famous conversation. If you know the Bible at all, you've probably at least heard the phrase, the woman at the well. Uh, this is from the beginning of John chapter four. Uh, but before I read it to you, and if you want to be finding it in the Bible, uh, these red Bibles, which are in your seat pockets and under your chairs, um, before we read it together, I want to do a little thought experiment. And I need to ask a favor of the Bible nerds in the room, because we don't all um, have the entire Bible at our fingertips like, uh, you know, Shane. Um, <coughs> so what I want to do just for 30 seconds or so is I'd like to have you shout out any story you can think of in the Bible that involves water. Go. Uh, not all at once. Let's, come on, order people. I'm just kidding. Del, yes. The wedding at Cana. He turns the water into wine. What, what was The rich man and Lazarus. Ah, that's an interesting water story. Rebecca drawing water. Moses and the bulrushes. Wow, I hadn't thought of that one. Jesus being baptized. Walking on water. Shout him out. Noah and the flood. The Red Sea. What? What? <laughs> oh, asleep in the boat during the storm. Great one, yes. Who, who said something back here? You are such a Bible nerd, Ken. <laughs> no, thank you, thank you. The point is, water is everywhere in the Bible. The, the symbology of water is throughout the whole story of Scripture. And today's, today's is just one example, but I thought it might be nice to have all that water flowing in the back of our head uh, as we proceed. So let's look at today's story, which is from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. I'm going to read this. I'll make two quick interjections as I do, and then we'll talk a little bit more deeply about some of it. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. Now, I'm going to show you a little map because the geography stuff actually helps us understand this. Uh, note that the text says he, he left Judea, which is in the south, as you can see, and started back to Galilee, which is where his family lived, and where he was raised in Nazareth, which is in the north. Uh, but as you can see on the map, he has to go through Samaria. And even our, our city for today, Sychar, is, is right there on the map. You can see that. Isn't that handy? Um, now, if you, if you know like the inside baseball here, you know that um, the kingdoms had split into north and south, and, and uh, the, the Samaritans were a remnant of the northern, less faithful kingdom that had intermarried with Gentiles, and they were not well respected, to say the very least, by the Jews. Uh, and so that's the, the geographic setting for this story. So it was about noon. He's sitting by the well. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. 
The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, this is the second little interjection here. For most of the rest of this passage, the, the you is a plural you, both when she says it and when Jesus says it. Now, in English, modern English, we don't have a distinction. It used to be ye that was plural. But you is both singular and plural. I could say you, Shane, know all the stories in the Bible. And I could say you, the rest of you, don't know as nearly as much as Shane. Um, <laughs> In this case, these yous are, are meant to refer to a, a group of you. Okay, our answer is worshipped on this mountain, but you, meaning the Jews, say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You, Samaritans, worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as those to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who's called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. So I want to talk about this, this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And the first thing I'll say is, did you notice that the first three things that the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, he doesn't answer them directly. Did you notice that? In verse 9, she had said, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? And rather than giving her a straight answer, he starts talking about living water, uh, which is a mysterious kind of thing that we'll, we'll talk about in a minute. And then in verse 11, she's puzzled, and she says, you don't have a bucket. How are you going to get me any water, living or otherwise? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who built this well and watered his flocks here? Jesus could have said yes, of course, but he didn't answer that question either. He just goes on to say that if you drink the water that I would give you, you'd never be thirsty. Still puzzled, but now intrigued, the woman asks him a third 
question. Well, in this case, it's more of a request. She simply says, give me some of this water. I want that water. And rather than saying, yes, you can have some or no, not for Samaritans, or something like that, Jesus tells her what? Go call your husband and come back here. What a confusing conversation this must have been for her. The first three things she says meet, are met with responses that, that don't really make sense, at least not immediately. So I want to hone in on this living water thing for a minute. That second question that she asked. To our modern ears, it might sound like a little bit like this woman is sort of dense. Because to our modern ears, we hear living water and we think, oh, this is that eternal life stuff, you know. It's Christianity, living water, got it. To her, that it doesn't make sense. And the reason is that, that Jesus is making a little bit of a pun here. Or more, more properly, a double entendre. Which, fancy French-derived word, just means heard twice. It means it has two meanings. The first meaning is obvious to her, but obscure to us. And the second meaning is obvious to us, but was obscure to her. The first meaning of the phrase living water is actually just describes a certain type of water, water that is moving. So a river that's flowing, or a well that's springing up. Uh, not a well, excuse me, a, a spring that's bubbling up. A well would not be living water. It would be still water or dead water or some other adjective. I'm not sure what it would be. But living water simply meant moving water. And that's important because for the Jewish purification rites, you had to use living water. You couldn't just draw water up out of Jacob's well and put it in the stone jars used for purification of the temple. We talked about those in John 2, where Jesus turned the water into wine. It had to come from a living source. A moving source of water was required for purification rites in Judaism. So that's the first meaning, just water that moves. The second meaning, which was obvious to us because we have the benefit of hindsight and 2,000 years of exposition and so forth, was very obscure to her. She didn't get what he was saying. And that's, of course, the living water in the eternal life sense of the word living. So it's the difference between water that's alive and the water of eternal life. Either way, she asks him for some. And again, the response is not what she was hoping for. He says to go call your husband and bring him back here. Now maybe there's a cultural thing where this conversation between a, a man and a woman who are not married to each other in this culture has gone on long enough. You need to go get your husband and then we can talk more about this stuff. But of course, she didn't have a husband. She was on number six, who wasn't a husband. And Jesus knows this about her. This is something that he could not have known, and so she correctly assumes that he possesses some profound, special, spiritual knowledge. And so perhaps to change the subject from her marital history, but perhaps to take advantage of the fact that she is now in the presence of a bona fide prophet, 
she asks him to weigh in on a major spiritual controversy. The controversy was this. Where is it appropriate to worship the one true God? Now, the Jews, who had, in their mind, stayed pure to their tradition, worshipped God in the temple in Jerusalem. And the Samaritans, um, who were outcasts and couldn't go to the temple in Jerusalem, worshipped him at a special temple on a mountain. And she says, well, as long as you're a prophet, tell me, what's, what's, we're standing here in Samaria between Judea and Galilee. What is the proper location to worship God? And he answers the question. But my impression is that his answer about worshiping God in spirit and in truth, though it is for the first time in this conversation a more direct answer, is nonetheless just confusing to her. And maybe it's confusing to you too. That business about true worshipers will worship God in spirit and truth, and God is spirit, and what does that all mean? And so her response is what indicates to me that maybe she was confused too. She says, well, we have this, this shared prophetic history, Jews and Samaritans. Someday the Messiah will come, and he'll proclaim everything. Almost as if to say, I don't know what you're talking about, so I'll just wait for the Messiah. I guess I'll ask him whenever I see him, if I'm lucky enough to do. And then Jesus says the most astonishing thing of all. He says, I am he, the one who's speaking to you. Now, this response is remarkable for two reasons. First and most obviously, that he claims to be the Messiah, the prophesied, anointed, chosen, forever king of Israel, of the Jewish people. That, that's a bold enough claim. But secondly, the way that he says it is remarkable. Our text here says, I am he, the one who's talking to you. The original language simply says, I am, the one who's talking to you. And why is that significant? Well, we have to go a little bit into deep Bible nerd stuff here for just a second. But the, the name of God that he chose for himself, uh, when Moses said to him, what should I, who, sh- who should I say to the Pharaoh has sent me to set your people free? And if you don't know this story, it's okay. But the point is that God says, I am who I am. Basically just says, my name is I am, which is really profound when you stop and think about it. Who are you, God? The answer, very simply and extremely complicatedly, is I am. Now, throughout the Old Testament, different little things get attached to that. I am your Savior, I'm your provider, and so forth. But the base form of the name of God, Yahweh, as it's anglicized, is simply I am. And for Jesus to say, in response to a comment about the Messiah, simply the words, I am. He's not only saying, I'm the Messiah. He's placing himself on the same plane as God. Which is, that's like double blasphemy, (laughs) if it weren't true. Now, as you go through the book of John, it's very interesting to keep this kind of thing in the back of your mind, this I am business. Because Jesus makes a number of claims throughout this gospel that start with those words. I am the good shepherd. I am 
the gate. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. All of these statements by Jesus not only say something specific about who he is and, and what his ministry is, but they place him as one with Yahweh, the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, the God of Israel. In that light, it makes a lot more sense that he would have known everything about the Samaritan woman. And it makes a lot more sense that he would promise her this water of eternal life with our understanding of that phrase, living water. And that's the last thing I want to do today is return for just a minute to verse 14 for a closer look at that promise. Those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. I just love this statement. It ties everything together from this whole bizarre conversation. And it sets an entire worldview, an entire religious meta-narrative on its head. And as a bonus, it has wordplay. Now, some of you think that I'm a word nerd. I think of myself more as a word jock. Um, (laughs) But I love little wordplay like this. So Jesus turns this well between him and this woman into the perfect visual aid, the perfect object lesson to talk about what he wants to do in her life and in all of humanity. The point is when we drink his water, we no longer need living water, meaning moving water for purification in this ritualistic temple sense. Because the spring of water Living water is inside us, gushing up to eternal life. And when you think about all of that's going on in that one little statement, it's no wonder that, that the early Christians made baptism in water the most important sacrament of conversion to Christianity. See, the waters of eternal life the living water, the springs of eternal life bubbling up when we drink from what Jesus offers to us is for the Samaritan woman and it's for me and it's for you, plural, (laughs) all of you. Now, when you ask him for a drink of this water, things will get weird. That is the one promise with Jesus. Things are never going to be the same if you take this water and drink it. If you accept this offer that he's making to you. And we'll continue with this story and see the specific ways it got weird for this woman and for the disciples and so forth next week. That's called a teaser. But today, the point is, Jesus does want to offer you living water. Water that is water of purification, but that doesn't come from ritual in a place of worship. Although rituals in a place of worship are at the heart of what we do. 
the heart of what Jesus does is inside your soul. And so, uh, I would like to take a moment and conclude this time in the Word this morning with silent prayer. I could pray some words, but I would be guessing what they might need to be for you. You know what the words are that you ought to be praying. And so, as silent as we can get in this room uh, with the people who we are, with no doors and all that stuff, I want to ask you to reflect on one question. Jesus is offering you a drink of water. Imagine him, he's just a person. In this story, he's just a person, flesh and blood. Imagine him offering you this water, and what do you say? Do you take it or not? Pause and reflect on that for just a minute or two. Silent prayer and meditation. Today's story was all about water, a basic elemental substance to which Jesus attached and attaches a monumental spiritual significance. And the same could be said and has been said about the bread and the wine of communion. And this is our response to hearing the word every time we come together for worship to come to the table of the Lord to receive the bread and the cup as Christians have done for thousands of years. And added to that today, I have put some water here in this baptismal font because we've been talking about water. And so if you come to this table this morning, I'd invite you to just touch it and feel it, just as I just did. Think of the living water. And for those who are baptized Christians, you could pause at that water before you take communion and remember your baptism and remember these beautiful elemental sacramental things all together at once. And if you are not a baptized Christian, we uh, generally say that this is not the response that you ought to be making today, communion. However, I would still invite you to come forward and touch this water. For you, you wouldn't be remembering a baptism that didn't happen. But you might ponder what that offer of living water means for you, that offer that Jesus is making to you. And we won't look at you funny if you don't then go and take communion. You can just sit back at your seat. Uh, and of course, it's always okay to, to stay and be still and think and pray. Uh, any of those responses are okay. I would just ask that you make the response that you sense the Spirit prompting you to make. Uh, 
in obedience. We're going to continue to worship in song. Uh, I invite you also to worship at the table and at the font. Respond to the Spirit. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.